please turn to the book of First John in the New Testament, the epistle of First John. And we'll be reading in the second chapter. This is uh, the same passage that we started last week. First John chapter 2. And we'll start reading in verse 18. And the word of the Lord says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, last week we began to look at this portion of Scripture. And as we studied it, we saw that there John is sounding the alarm because of the appearance of many antichrists, false teachers, in the assemblies to which he was the pastor. And he stated that it was during this last hour, the time which began with the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with the Lord Jesus Christ incarnation. And John explained that these false teachers who were part of the church left the congregation because, as he said, they were never of us. They were really not of us. They were not truly redeemed, and this was made manifest by the fact that they left. And we saw that true disciples persevere, those that stayed and persevered in the church. Those who were not drawn away by the false teachers and persevered. Now this morning, as we continue in this passage, we see that John now, beginning in verse 20, he addresses the true believers and encourages them by instructing them on spiritual resources that they possess as Christians to help them stand fast, as we sang this morning, and in the midst of the battle that they are facing with these false teachers. He also further describes the Antichrist in the following verses that we read, and finally, the consequences of their satanic lies are described. Now, in this portion of Scripture, beginning with verse 20, John tells us that there is a provision that is made for the believer. After he has signaled and pointed to those who were false teachers and left the assembly, he is now addressing directly the believers, the ones that had stayed. 
the church here has been affected by these antichrists, these false teachers, who were part of the assembly and then left, taking with them some who were deceived by their false teachings. They went out. And some within the church that remain may feel somewhat shaken by all this. When we see this occurring in the local assembly, it is a traveling thing. And they may be afraid that they too could go astray in a similar manner, perhaps. So John in this section begins to present what is, what is it that enables the true believer, not the false ones that left, but the true believers, the one that persevered, to stand and to remain and to avoid being deceived by false teaching. In verse 26, a little further on, it says, He says, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. So John is writing here concerning those who are trying to deceive them, and he's helping them to stand fast. So John is writing in this section to protect the true believers from the deceptions of the apostate false teachers, the Antichrists. John again turns now directly to his readers, and as the pastor, he has encouraging words for them, and he has instructions to assure them. In spite of the claims of the heretics, John assures his flock that they have the spiritual resources to resist the Antichrist, to resist the false teachers. In spite of the claims of these heretics, he reminds his readers of the resources they have to meet the crisis. So he says that the believers, the true believers, have an anointing from the Holy One, in verse 20 of the first part, and also that they have a knowledge of the truth, and we find that in the second part of verse 20 as well as in, in verse 21. But as we begin to look at this in verse 20, we see there the first word. He says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. The ESV says you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. It is the same concept. It is the concept that they have a true knowledge. They all, the true believers, have this knowledge. Now, the word but at the beginning of the verse here contrasts the true disciples, whom he's addressing in the previous verses, with and the Antichrist address there, and he has just described in verses 18 and 19, and he's contrasting now with the true believers whom he's addressing now. And he's saying to the true believers, contrary to those I have just described, this is who you are. This is what describes you. This is what you possess to be able to stand firm. And he proceeds then to list these two essential qualities that identify the true child of God. First, you have an anointing from the Holy One. And second, you all know or, or you all have knowledge. See, over against the Antichrist who have left the church, John then sets the true children of God who have stayed. The first distinctive is you have an anointing from the Holy One. Now, the word anointing, the word 
Krishna literally means ointment or oil. John does not identify this anointing here, but it is generally agreed that it refers to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit given to the believer at regeneration, at salvation. The anointing in this text refers figuratively to the Holy Spirit, who has taken up residency in believers at the command of Jesus Christ. Now, anointing is just a graphic way of describing the influence and the effect of the Holy Spirit upon the believer. In the Old Testament, we find that prophets and priests and kings were anointed with oil in the ceremonies used to set them apart for their office. In that way, they were regarded as, as consecrated, enabled to carry out their offices, their duties. So John here is saying that every Christian is one who has been set apart by God and has been spiritually enabled, having received the Holy Spirit. Now, this is corroborated in a number of passages in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 states, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So that means that all those who belong to him have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now the figure of anointing is used in the Old Testament in connection, I'm sorry, in the New Testament in connection with Jesus' ministry. We find in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, it says the Lord Jesus in the synagogue here um, reads from the prophet Isaiah, and he picks up and reads a passage that speaks of him, that is fulfilled in him as the Messiah. And he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, here, the Spirit himself is saying he was anointed. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, Peter is speaking in, in Cornelius' home, and he says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing, and who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So we see in these passages both speaking of Christ being anointed. God anointed him with the Holy Spirit. So the anointing in verse 20 in our passage in back to 1 John refers to the Holy Spirit. Now note the verb there. The verb says, you have. And this indicates a continued possession. It's not just a temporary thing. It's not something that comes and goes. It's not something... For a moment, but it is a continued possession 
of this anointing in the believer. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit establishes the believer in their faith and enables the believer to understand God's truth, to understand God's word. We call this illumination, is a ministry of the Holy Spirit in the believer. By the Holy Spirit being illumined, the believer understands God's truth. The false teachers who threatened John's readers, interesting, employed the terms anointing and knowledge to describe their religious experiences. So John here is using the term and applying it to the believer. He says, in a sense, they have a false anointing. You have a true anointing. Now, these false teachers at this time were precursors to Gnostics, to Gnosticism, which became prominent in the second century. And they saw themselves as possessing an elevated and esoteric form of divine knowledge. And as the recipients of this special secret transcendent anointing, they had this knowledge. And this led them to believe that they possessed truth and the uninitiated, those that were not the illuminated, they lacked this. So John's response is here to assert that in reality all true Christians have a true anointing from the Holy One. This was both a rebuttal to the Antichrist and it's assuring to the believers. It's a a message of reassurance to true believers. So as the verse goes on, he says, you have an anointing from the Holy One. The anointing was received from the Holy One, stressing the sanctity of the giver, the holiness of the giver. Now, views differ as to the intended identity of the Holy One. John doesn't identify him. So who is the Holy One mentioned here? Now, biblical references associate both the Father and Jesus Christ with the coming of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 26, it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance that I remembrance all that I said to you. Note whom the Father will send. Then in John fifteen twenty six it says, When the helper comes, whom I will send, and this is the Lord Jesus speaking here, to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So here it says that Jesus will send the Holy Spirit. So both Jesus and the Father are identified as sending the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is indeed called in the New Testament the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Jesus. Now the passage we read just a minute earlier in Romans 8, 9. However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... He does not belong to him. We have here in this verse both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ identified as the Holy Spirit. In Acts 16, 7, it says after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go to Bithynia, 
and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So in our passage, at a few verses further down in verses 27 and 28 in 1 John chapter 2, strongly suggests that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is in view here, the one that's called the Holy One. Let me read that, those two verses. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So this links Jesus to the anointing. So the Lord Jesus is most likely the Holy One referred to in verse 20. As the Son of God, he is, in essence, holy. In the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John, in verse 37, John states, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. And then John quotes verses from Isaiah. And then in verse 41 of that same chapter, he says, These things, what he had just quoted from Isaiah, Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Now, the portion that John quoted here in the previous verses is found in Isaiah chapter 6. At the beginning of that chapter, the prophet sees the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Above the throne stood seraphim with veiled face, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And here the Holy Spirit tells us in John chapter 12, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So the context makes it clear that the reference is to the Lord Jesus. In this passage, one of the sublimest descriptions of God's holiness found in all the Old Testament is here by John, by the Holy Spirit, applied to Christ. So there's a definite testimony to the absolute deity of Christ and the absolute holiness of Christ. Now, throughout the New Testament, there are references to Christ as the Holy One. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 35, the angel is speaking to Mary and says, The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason... The holy child shall be called the Son of God. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Mark chapter 1 and verse 24. Here a demon is speaking to Jesus, and he says, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon recognized he was the Holy One of God. By the way, you notice that the demon has orthodox doctrine here? But 
it's a reminder that correct doctrine or correct knowledge by itself without true belief in Christ does not lead to saving faith. Then in John chapter 6 and verse 69, which Pastor Bill's been covering recently, Peter answered the Lord saying, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter again in Acts chapter 3 and verse 14 says, but you disown the Holy and Righteous One and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. So it's abundantly clear from the scriptures that the Holy One is one of the Lord Jesus' divine titles. It is used over and over again of him. And since none but God is in essence holy, and Christ is the Holy One, then he is God. Regarding this anointing from the Lord Jesus Christ, now back in 1 John, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones states the following. This is an interesting point which can be looked at in two ways. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who sent the Holy Spirit upon the infant church. The Holy Spirit did not come until Christ had ascended up into heaven. Then he came. He comes from the Father and the Son, or from the Father through the Son. It is as a result of the perfect work of the Son that the Father gives the Holy Spirit to all who belong to him. That is one way of looking at it, but there is another way of looking at it. Because we are incorporated into Christ and into the life of Christ, we partake of what is true of him. Therefore, as he has been anointed and has received the Holy Spirit without measure, all of us who are in him receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because we are in him. Now, as we go on in verse 20, you notice that John then says, but you have an anointment anointing from the Holy One, and you all know, or as he said, or you all have knowledge. This is the second essential quality of the true believer that John is presenting here. And this is consistent with John's assurance that his readers do have an anointing and are not dependent on just an elite few, those who have have a mystic illumination, those who have this special knowledge. The true knowledge of the believer is not confined to a favored elite, but is accessible to them all. The believers have an enabling, enabling of understanding of God's truth by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that's residing in them. And this enabling of understanding of God's truth, it is through the word of God. Note that illumination by the Holy Spirit does not function apart from God's word. Psalm 119 and verse 18 that we read this morning says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Open my eyes, and it is the Holy Spirit that opens the eyes of the believer to understand the Word of God. This knowledge is wrought in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, enabling the believer to know the difference between God's truth 
and the counterfeit claims of the false teachers, such as the ones that were assaulting the church for John's writing. Now, the basic attack of all false religious system is to deny either Christ's deity or his humanity or his sufficiency to save and sanctify. Over and over, this is the attack that is usually burdened. Believers need to have true knowledge and understanding about Christ's deity, humanity, and his sufficiency to be able then to withstand the false teachers. Because believers have received the anointing of the Holy Spirit, they have the true understanding of God that comes exclusively through Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So believers don't need any secret, special, or transcendent understanding, any esoteric teaching or insight. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. John MacArthur, regarding this verse, states, at salvation, sinners receive the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. When God sovereignly shines that light into sin-darkened hearts through the preaching of the gospel, it brings true knowledge of who Christ is, that he is God incarnate, and that the glory of God shines perfectly in his face. The light is expressed as the knowledge of the glory of God. That means to know that Christ is God incarnate. To understand that the glory of God shone in Christ. In the Gospel of John in chapter 1, well-known verses 4 and 5, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice that we saw his glory. Although Christ's deity may have been veiled in, when he was in human flesh, there were glimpses in the gospel of his divine majesty. The, divi the disciples saw glimpses of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. The reference to Christ's glory, however, was not only visible, but also spiritual. They saw him display the attributes or characteristics of God, his grace, goodness, mercy, wisdom, truth. And when it says glory as of the Father, Jesus as God displayed the same essential glory as the Father. So back to 1 John and verse 20. John affirms that the believers have a supernatural anointing of the Holy Spirit through whom they are established in their faith and are enabled to know and understand God's truth. And this is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And they have a constant source of spiritual knowledge that enables them to withstand the false teachers and to persist in their faith. Now, as we go on to verse 21, John here expands on the discussion of this knowledge. 
that true believers have, says, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. So verse 21 first reiterates John's assurance that his readers had knowledge and were adhering to the truth they had received. Now there's a connection between this verse and the preceding one when he says, where he said, you know all things in verse 20, which is the result of the Spirit's anointing. This here is defined more definitively as knowledge of the truth in this verse. Notice he says, because you have knowledge of the truth. And therefore, having knowledge of the truth, they're able to detect error. Calvin states, they would be able readily to distinguish between light and darkness because they had the Spirit for their guide. Verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. This assured the believers that he was not seeking to impart any new truth, but support them in their adherence to the truth. They had been faithful to the truth so far, and he's given them the encouragement, the assurance that they have enabled the Holy Spirit and the truth to be able to sustain that truth in the face of the false teachers. Now, negatively, he says that he had not written to them because you do not know the truth. Uh, They were not to feel that he was seeking to lead them into a new understanding of the truth. This truth they knew as the living reality of God, whose true nature has been supremely revealed in Christ and applied to the believer by the Holy Spirit. So the pastoral assurance, John here, is designed to confirm their rejection of the many antichrists that had arisen because being true to the knowledge they had, they had rejected the false teachers. And one assures them of the fact that they did not follow the false teachers because of the true knowledge of Christ established in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. One commentator observes, the greatest Christian defense is simply to remember what we know. John emphasizes his assurance concerning their knowledge of the truth. His purpose in writing, he says, is not to inform them of new truth, but to confirm them in the truth that they already know. Similarly, Paul told the Romans in chapter 15 of that epistle, in verses 14 and 15, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. As believers, we need to be reminded of the truth that God has revealed and applied to our hearts. Not only do these believers uh, that John is addressing know the truth, but they know the character of the truth. That is, wholly true and self-consistent. And he says that no lie comes from the truth. Chapter 8 of the Gospel of John in verse 44 states, whenever he the devil speaks a lie, 
he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So closing the verse, John says, and because no lie is of the truth. Again, pointing the contrast between the Antichrist false teachers who are the representative of Satan, who are the liars, and the believers who have the truth of God are the ones that have the truth. And these words express a further reason for John's assurance concerning the readers he was addressing. He was certain that truth and falsehood cannot coexist, that a lie can never be an inherent part of the truth. So in verse 21, John reiterates that believers have true knowledge of God by saying he had not written to them because they did not know the truth, but because they did know it. And so the axiomatic statement closing the verse, no lie is of the truth, just simply states that something cannot be simultaneously true and false. And because Christians are taught by the Holy Spirit to know the truth, they can recognize doctrinal error when they see it for what it really is, if taught by the Word of God. So what the Apostle John is teaching in these two verses is that true believers, in contrast to the false disciples, have received the Holy Spirit and therefore know the truth of the gospel. The Christian is enlightened by the Holy Spirit to know and understand the truth concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and concerning his work to accomplish our salvation. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The natural man cannot know or understand the things of the Spirit of God because they can only be spiritually appraised. The Holy Spirit opens our spiritual eyes so that we can truly know and understand his truth through his word. As we go on then to the final two verses in our section this morning, verses 22 and 23, John here presents then the contrast, the mark of a false disciple. And he does that in, the chapter, in verse 22 and then the first part of verse 23. And then at the last part of verse 23, he presents uh, the mark of a true disciple. He begins, who is the liar but the one who, verse 22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. The presence of the many Antichrists demands that believers know the identifying mark of these Antichrists. And the language that John uses here is very strong. <clears throat> he refers to the Antichrist as liars. Uh, 
Now, it may seem surprising to some that this is coming from the one who is known as the Apostle of Love. <clears throat> After all, in this same epistle, in the same chapter, just a few verses before, he talked about loving one another. But that kind of attitude is, is really driven by an unbiblical view of love and a worldly view of tolerance. See, the Apostle John here is motivated by a true love and fidelity to the truth of the gospel. And he uses a strong language because the subject he's dealing with is of vital importance. He's strongly confronting those who would deny the person of Jesus Christ and thus deny the gospel. But actually, this also illustrates an important principle that we find throughout the New Testament, and that is when a central gospel truth is attacked, it must be confronted forcefully and firmly. Listen to John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3 and verse 7. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the wrath to come. The Lord Jesus confronting the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 27 said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Strong words. The Apostle Paul to the Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8 said, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And the same Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 16, verse 22, if anyone does not love the world, he is to be accursed. When attacked personally, we as Christians, as believers, are to endure patiently. But when the truth of the gospel is threatened, we are to respond firmly without compromising. Now, back to First John in these verses, John emphatically established the identity of the Antichrist as a liar and simply stated the basic confession of the true believer at the end of verse 23. So first we have the mark of the Antichrist, the liar. The word, words who is a liar call then for a personal identification of such an individual when that person is encountered. He's saying... Who is a liar? And he's identified the Antichrist. The phrase, but he, the one who denies, indicates that anyone characterized by this crucial denial cannot escape just being branded as the liar. He's identified by this characteristic denial. says the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. See, the denial is about Christ. It's denying Jesus as the Christ, denying his deity. It is not a matter of, doubt, matter of doubt, but an open refusal to accept this basic doctrine. So the false teachers were denying the basic Christ, doctrine of who Christ is. And so he openly rejects the apostolic teaching of the incarnation. It is the denial that in Jesus of Nazareth, God and man are united. And as you remember, we talked about in the past, 
the pre-Gnostics denied both the humanity of Christ and they denied the deity of Christ. Whatever the precise identity of these heretics, John regarded their denial as the height of heresy. And it constituted a direct attack on the very heart of the apostolic message. Any denial of Christ is a direct attack on the gospel because Jesus Christ is God's self-revelation. In saying this is the Antichrist, John here points out the individual and stamps him as an Antichrist. Now, that word, of course, is referring to him as the embodiment of the Antichrist spirit that we talked about last week, which is the spirit of the Antichrist in the world. And this denial is seen not merely as an erroneous thinking, but is diabolically inspired by the father of lies, the devil. The identification as the one who denies the father and the son then establishes this diabolical, diabolical anti-Christian spirit and portrays his open and deliberate refusal to acknowledge the reality concerning the Father and the Son. Whatever may have been their teaching about God, John declares that these anti-Christian heretics had no personal relationship with God as Father. Because, you see, their denial of the Son inevitably involves a denial of the Father who revealed himself in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son. So this is an absolute designation. The Son occurs here for the first time in this epistle. In the first part of this verse, Jesus is mentioned as the Christ. Notice, now he is called the Son. And the two designations, of course, refer to one person. There's no transition from one person to another, from the human to the divine they are both in one person in Jesus Christ. The thought of the Son includes both of these in their fullness. In the first part of verse 23, John carried the denial a step further. He says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Their denial of the Son means that they have no personal relationship with God as the Father. They do not stand in any child-parent relationship with him as the true believer in Christ does. And by their, their denial of the Son, they excommunicate themselves from the Christian family. Now, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, has some interesting comments regarding this, and he states that there are consequences from accepting this false teaching. He says, first of all, since it's a denial of the real nature of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a denial of the doctrine of the Incarnation. You no longer have the God-man, and one of the central glories of the gospel is lost. It's also denial of the doctrine of the two natures in one person, and that's a central and vital New Testament truth. It also denies the atoning work of Christ, therefore there is no atonement. And furthermore, the doctrine of God, the Father, is lost. The Lord Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We can never know the Father 
except in the Son. We do not know as no God as Father except in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. With what with that then we lose a great comfort of the gospel, which is a heavenly Father who knows our needs and cares for us. And that is lost. And we cannot have fellowship with God the Father. And finally, this false teaching denies the doctrine of the Trinity. Again, I have a quote here from Dr. Lloyd-Jones. I do not know about the Father until I know the Son. And it is when I know the Father and the Son that I begin to understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, who is sent by the Father and the Son, and who, as it were, is there with the Father and the Son and explains the intimate relationship between them. I lose everything if I deny the doctrine of the Son. It is the Eternal Father who has planned salvation. It is the Son who came and worked out that plan, and it is God the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to it and who makes it real and actual in all of us. That's why John is so concerned about this false teaching, because it is so destructive. That's why he says it's a lie, and this lie, lie need, leads to grave consideration, kind of consequences. And then finally, the last part of chapter 23, we have the confession of the true believer. Over against the denials of the heretics stands the confession of the believer. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. The singular, the one who confesses, marks this confession as an activity of an individual, not of a group. It is the individual believer who confesses God and the Son, confesses the Son. It marks an open testimony of the believer, a testimony and acceptance of the truth concerning the Son, Jesus Christ. And then it brings the assurance that he has the Father also because he has the Son. He has communion with the Father since the Father mediates his presence to the believer through the Son. John chapter 14 and verse 6. Again, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So in this passage, we see the tragic consequences that are the result of the assault by the false teachers in biblical truth. And that truth that we've seen this morning that was attacked, it's continually being attacked by false religions, false gospel, false teachers. Now the battle for the truth has been going on since the fall, but became much more intense since the coming of our Lord and frankly appears to be getting more intense each day. All true believers are soldiers in this spiritual war against the kingdom of darkness. And if we, as believers, are to be effective soldiers, then first we must be aware of this battle 
And then we must be alert in the battle and we must be prepared for the battle. Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse three says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That is our call to battle. And the only effective weapon in this battle is the spirit-empowered wielding of God's word. 